have a title, have a, a title for a talk, which is a rare thing for me, and it's called Dismantling Me. In um, preparing for this, I came across a phrase that describes the truest part of who we are. When we, when we dismantled ourselves, it's called um, the, our original, <coughs> original brightness. I love that. So I'm going to talk about the uncovering, <coughs> revealing our original brightness, or a little shady compared to how we can be. And um, all of this really is about all the same things we've all been saying to you over the days. But the focus I want to uh, focus on tonight is perception, because it's all about perception, all of this. How we are, how we experience any moment, how we are entrapped, how we can become free, it's all about how we perceive this incredible facility we have, unbelievably powerful, which apparently reveals to us reality. And it's extremely subjective most of the time. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right-doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. Most of you know this beginning of a poem by Rumi. Ideas of wrong and right. We perceive what is wrong and right. So in doing um, this work, really, this inner examination, we are examining this facility we have, this, this way it functions, our perception. It's fine work, it's subtle work, it's not at all what is usually done in our worldly life at all. And it's really discovering the nature of how this perception is, how it works, what it's doing, how it creates our experience, how we then respond and basically create our lives. As we perceive anything, we believe, of course, and we think, and we all know this a lot, that um, we are seeing it. We're seeing clearly, we think. The truth, of course, is that we're seeing through lenses that are many, many layers, many, many layers of colors, of distortion, of um, opinion, of values, of take, you know, of beliefs, which we don't realize are there. The way we perceive, we think this is the way it is, right? So really what we're doing in this work that we do is um, seeing the layers that are distorting or coloring our perception. And as we do it, it's a very interesting thing how it works. It's like we are cleaning these viewfinders. 
except that we don't do it. What we do is we look through our perception, and as we look and we see what we see, again and again, over and over, layer after layer, we see, we recognize that there is some color, there is some distortion there. It isn't quite what it looked like, because I, in this moment, have something added that's perverting it slightly. And then we see that. That's what we do. And what happens is that layer of, of distortion or coloring is seen to be what it is, distortion, coloring. It's seen that it isn't actually the thing itself that we're looking at. It has this a flavor. And by doing that, the flavor loses power. The flavor no longer exerts an influence when it's seen for what it is. We've busily been looking at the various things we look at, our experiences, the comments, our feelings about things, all of the miscellaneous bombardment of stuff that happens moment by moment. It's, it's, when the mind gets very quiet, sometimes you just feel like you're in a complete war zone and you're just completely bombarded by stimulus all over. The, sometimes you can feel like your skin is crawling with ants sometimes, that all the sense doors, even in a quiet retreat center, it can feel amazing. And we notice those things. This practice is we're looking to see how we're perceiving them. And then we see there is the stimulus, and then there's my perception, which is making it good or bad, desirable, etc. To do this, to see how we do this, we need a very um, steady heart. For two reasons, I think. I mean, one of them is that a lot of what we're going to see our colorations, our distortions, our perversions of perception, uh, we don't want to see we're embarrassed about. We wish we didn't do it. We don't like doing it. We would like to be better than that. And so it's hard to see. It's counterintuitive to see because we've so easily blamed the weather or you know something else outside ourselves. So I've already talked about that. We've all been talking about that, to actually look here rather than out there is a, a radical change and takes practice. That's one reason why it's hard. But it's hard to see, to take responsibility for what you've been actually doing and adding to it. And that's, it's a lot to swallow. To be able to do that then, a couple of things that we need which are really essential, and we have talked about this to a certain degree, is we need to be gentle about it. We can't just like rip off the coverings. It doesn't work that way. We're way too fragile and they're way too habituated. It, they melt. They dissolve sometimes gently. We don't know how that process happens or when or in what time. Sometimes a whole layer seems to come away. And other times it seems to be just a, a, a melting the way something melts, you know, a solid melts in a liquid and you can see it or you're sucking a you know, a clear candy and it just dissolves bit by bit. The, the process of how it does it, we can't run that. But we need gentleness. We need to be friendly, which is why the emphasis of metta and anything that tenderizes our heart, that reassures us. Because it's 
often stuff we don't want to, we just would rather not admit to oftentimes. And so to be able to let it in and uh, allow it and be okay about it and not get bummed out by ourselves and our behaviors, we need to have a friendly attitude and a kindness going on in the heart. So we need miscellaneous heart-type practices so that we feel soothed, so that we feel um, safe, easy, light about it. A lot of what happens, I know, in conversations that I have with people during our interviews together, when people describe something, I'll just go like, that's right, we do. It's that reassurance that th th this is normal. So that kindness um, <coughs> is necessary to do this work. And, uh, and along with that, and part of that, is we need a sense of safety to do it too. We, don't, we can't do it so well if we are feeling already unsure. Because it's, it's our deeper stuff. It's the stuff that we've been hiding. And why have we been hiding it? It's so tender and vulnerable. So to be able to be tender and vulnerable, we need to have a sense of safety. So it often doesn't arise in day-to-day -day life because we're so, at any moment, about to you know, bump into somebody or somebody could yell or we could get into a fight over something or be irritated that we have a lot of guard up through our normal life. And so the guard prevents us from being able to be tender. But we find when we come to something like this or we're with really close friends who know us well and we don't need to be so guarded that actually, in that safety, the openings happen. Things come up that we haven't thought about for years. Memories or things that touch us just wash over us when we're in retreat. Often surprising, we'll say, I haven't even, I just didn't even, haven't thought about this for such a long time, and you know, here it is. And this is why, it's because of the profound safety, which we emphasize in coming and encourage, ask you to actually be respectful and careful, so that the effect is we are able to open up. Thomas Merton. He's talking about the sense of self. <clears throat> this, uh, he talks about our, our normal sense of who we are as being superficial, merely superficial, the masked or sham or masquerading self, the knotted cramp of the imagination, or the solipsistic bubble who understands itself as the center of the world. The individual who parades itself in disguise to impress the crowd. Sound familiar? <laughs> the phony that makes faces at itself as if in a mirror to prove its own reality. The Cartesian ego who thinks of itself as in control of all truth. Don't we though? We really believe what we think. I'm right. This is the servile and anxious self who feels that it is walking a tightrope across an abyss of nothingness. By contrast, he goes on, there is the possibility of the true self who hides from ordinary consciousness like a shy wild animal that emerges only when all is very quiet and no one is present. This is a lot about why we emphasize not communicating with each other on retreat, so we can sort of feel like no one is watching. And then we're likely to emerge. This truer self of ours is likely to emerge because we're shy. We're vulnerable. We don't like being vulnerable. We're already pretty vulnerable. We're very sens sensory. That's what we are, sensate beings. 
and were, you know, basically on death row, as Yana was convincing us last night. <laughs> and we have no idea of the length of our sentence. And we have no idea the method. And then all day long, people keep bumping into us and then mis you know, misinterpreting what we've said. And what comes out of our mouth isn't what we intended to come out of our mouth. It's tricky. And so, of course, we are shy. Our true selves, our uh, original brightness is hidden. And so we have a kind of relief in the solitude and in the silence and in the time that retreats offer us, or retreat-type life, you know, holidays of reflection and so on. So that in this silence where no one is watching, we can admit some of our, for instance, compulsions, these embarrassing tendencies that we have, these habits that we have. We can allow them to be here. I have a ladybird with me right now. It's a private kind of work. It's intimate kind of exploration. And uh, even though it's sometimes difficult and, you know, sometimes hard to face and everything, one of the things, this is just a little insert here, but I'll put more in later about this, that um, we see that helps us do it is that we, we don't just see these things about ourselves and how we function and how our perception is so distorted out of fear, out of need, out of habituated coping mechanisms and everything, is we see that it makes sense. There's a little phrase of Sylvia Borstein. I've quoted her before, I think, even in this retreat. She must be on my mind. I'm going to teach with her next week. Um, she says, it may be awful, but it's lawful. So there's a sense of seeing how it works. We're, we're looking at the functioning of the system and how we're perceiving our perception function. It's extraordinary that we have these minds that can watch themselves and understand. And we see how it is and we see why it does it, not just how it is and oh no. And so in this degree of calm and this degree of safety, and with the gentleness that we know we need, then um, we, we're willing to make mistakes. We're willing to f accept that we have done and to make more mistakes because as we do this practice, we can't do it right. You've heard me say this again and again to you. We can't do it right. We can't do it wrong. There's no such thing as wrong or right, actually. That's just another concept. Um, but the way we learn is we learn by discovering when we have got into trouble. That's how we learn. It's called trial and error. And you don't learn unless you have the error part. Because then you realize, oh, that was too much. That was when I, my wholesome desire to be free became obsessive and I'm chasing that quiet sit again. We see where we get into trouble, where we, we go a little too far in one way or another. And that's how we learn to come back again. If we didn't go too far, we wouldn't learn that. Some of you know this little story that pops into my mind that um, Ajahn Sumedho, the senior Western monk of Ajahn Chah, 
uh, Thai forest monk, many of you know who he is. He died, lived in the last century, and one of the, what's the word, patriarchs of this particular um, aspect of Theravada Buddhism here. Um, anyway, Ajahn Sumedho was practicing with him there in Thailand and then went to England and started up a whole monastic order in England. And in the beginning, um, it was very tricky because the English didn't know what monks were at all, and they certainly didn't know about supporting them and feeding them, and some of them got quite hungry, and it was quite a challenge to make it all work and have the buildings work and, and so on and so forth because there's dependence on the laity. Anyway, um, it was pretty tricky for quite some time. I don't know quite how long that some time was, but after, I don't know what, a couple of years or more, and I would know more than me maybe, it was beginning to come together, and people were beginning to relate to each other okay, and the system was working and so on more harmony in, inside the community and in the community of support around them and so on. So he was back with Ajahn Sumedho visiting Ajahn Chah and was reporting to him that actually it was functioning reasonably well. And so Ajahn Chah says to him, oh, well, you're never going to learn anything from that lot then, are you? <laughs> <laughs> so trial and error, you know, it's like learning from, and in, in, when we feel safe and relatively private, then we can see you know, when something is too much or when it's excessive or when it's inappropriate. We can admit in that privacy. Um, there's a little story of, uh, I mentioned it to somebody recently, of um, a student visiting a, his teacher, Zen Roshi, and receiving some teachings. And uh, they're delivered in a, you know, very thoughtful and meaningful way and the student just gets it you know is nodding and and, and understands and, he, and then he asks you know how will how can he really absorb these teachings I mean he they sound good and everything but how can he make them his own and the teacher answers through your own experience and so that sounds good and so the, the student takes that in and then he asks and how do I get experience <laughs> and the teacher says through uh, your good judgment and he's, right, that's right. And then he thinks about that. And then he says, and how do I get good judgment? And the teacher says, through bad judgment. <laughs> and that's how it is for us. It's how we learn everything, really. I mean, you know, our parents try and tell us, and our teachers try and tell us, and we sort of try and hear, and we try and do it. But actually, it's practical. It's through our own direct going wrong, or getting into, getting bogged down, or getting exhausted, or something like that, getting upset. Do something about this ladybird. Go on to the Buddha. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> so we look and see, and we look and see in here, and so we're seeing me. So what do I see? So the most obvious and the first foundation we're told to look at is this body. Mm. So it feels pretty real, which is why it's accessible to the less subtle mind that average perception can perceive. F mass, temperature, pain, weight, shape, size, height, color, hair, the obvious things. We can perceive, because it isn't just through looking after, it's perceiving is you know, much more broad than that. We can perceive our health, 
or lack thereof, our energy or lack thereof, our tensions and pains or comforts and all that. Yeah, pretty. We think of this as me. It's often the first thing we think of. How do I look? Physique, abilities, physical, you know, strengths and so on and so forth. And within the body, as we look, we also can perceive less obvious, but definitely perceivable aspects like the elements, for instance, which suggested that this is one way to perceive this body that we think of as me and see it in terms of its solidity, feel the bones, feel the weight, feel the pressing down of the mass of you on your cushion, things like that, feel the, the lack of bendiness in the shin bones and so on and so forth. The um, the liquidity, we can be tuning into the liquidity of our body and we can feel the slipperiness inside the mouth and the slipperiness around the eyeballs that if it wasn't there, we would, as we turned, you know, it wouldn't work, it would be creaky and, and how the joints can move because there's lots of liquid in there and, you know, the sweating when we have our hot flashes, all these things, we can perceive it. We can perceive um, the temperature we really can feel, we can feel in the creases of the palm, it's warmer than on the backs of the hands. We can directly feel this element of heat. Heat and cool go outside. It's very tangible. We think it's me, this body. It's actually this sensitive device with these different aspects. Air, hard to perceive air in the body. It's described in traditional terms as the, uh, the, like things like vibration, movement, expanding and contracting so that we're not a solid mass. We know the theory. I used to teach yoga and doing relaxation to the students would say, in actual fact, your body, if you took all the elements, just the actual nuclei and put them all together, you, you'd fit on the size of a pin. But actually we're expanded because there's space between, every, in all the atoms of the body, it's mostly space and we are space. Those are just words, but we can feel more spacious at times, we can feel more compressed at times and so on. These are just one way of perceiving, apparently, me. Then we've got our whole personality stuff, which we really identify much more with. I'm an Aries, by the way. <laughs> I'm an enthusiast. You know, I mean, we, we have all these ways of perceiving ourselves and describing ourselves, right? We have our class. I am a, how much do you know? If somebody said, describe yourself to me, what would we say? We think this is me. We know all this. It's useful to see that we do that. Then there's our uh, roles. I am a mother. I was till my son grew up. I'm not quite sure if I'm still a mother. <laughs> Sometimes he disagrees. Or, um, you know, a professional role. And then it gets, it gets quite, I think the whole thing gets really interesting. You see somebody and you know them without a certain role, and you know them in another role, and then you, you see, then you discover that they have another role that you didn't know. The person you've been talking to turns out to be, you know, a brilliant artist. Are they different then? Do we relate to them differently? We do. You know, or we're told that somebody is a such and such, and then we relate to them differently than with their something else and how that we're so affected by what we think of as the definition of the person. There's the little story, some of you I'm sure know this little story. I don't know where I got the story, true story. Nurses at um, nursing school, first term, midterm, midterm exam, going home for a few days. The last question on the midterm exam is, what's the name of the cleaning lady? 
and some of them don't answer and some of them you know write funny comments and this and that and anyway they come back after their midterm break and they're getting their papers back and the instructor is gets to the last question and and somebody says was that a you know was that a play question or and she would say, absolutely not. You're nurses. You're intending to nurse and care for people. And you don't even know the person's name who every single day is coming around after you're leaving the building. And the end of the little comment is her name was Dorothy. <laughs> and how easy it is to, you know, who's not seen, who's not seeable, who's worthy of our, you know, all of that, how that completely colors our behavior. We're taught that so young. I, I pops into my mind the the whole Indian thing of the touchables and the untouchables. What a what a way to be perceived. That's a really extreme version of it, but we do it, you know, the homeless person or the, you know, whatever it may be. When children are children, they don't do that. You know, we we develop this perception. We're, we're we're told it, we're taught a lot of it. This is the way to do it. This is the way to see. You see those people over there? Before that, the, the child doesn't dis discriminate at all in the same way. But how our perception is discriminatory, and how we're taught that and learn that. What's reality there? was really re re real. This, we just get so caught with all these labels that we've, we really believe. And so much of our experience of ourselves is associated with these various identities that we, we think are me. You know, we go, we, you know, say somebody has some great success, and, and we know how this affects their, their whole behavior, their whole life. They're now a star. Lots of people can't handle it. And Yanai was talking about people on death row who've been there or been institutionalized in jail, let's say, for a very long time, who become normalized with that because that's perception. This is normal and that is scary, the other. Did you change? Did you win the lottery and change? Because now you have a bigger house. What's you here? Are you that? The thing, one of the things that our minds do, which we get to see, which they do and they, they perceive as real, which is a, has a huge influence on all of this, is um, that we don't know, of course, how animals' minds work. But in our less complicated old strategies, we don't do. But in our typical conventional way of going about things, we do all the time without realizing is the mind makes solid what's not solid. It solidifies reality. And it gives, it extends time from the momentary experience, which is really all we're experiencing, and makes up time. And so it makes something that's a fleeting something into a, def, a defined thing. I am such and such, period, forever, forever, till I die, I'm going to be this. We, we, we assume time, and we assume that that's a real thing. And it's the mind that does that. It presumably has worked somewhat in our survival, or we wouldn't have developed it to such a degree. But we do it so much, we don't question it. 
And so, for instance, we're having a conversation, somebody, one of you, you know, talking with one of us, and you're describing your experience to us, which we're asking you to do. And then you say, you know, I am such and such. And you believe it. We've defined ourselves, and that's we sort of then actually sentenced ourselves. This is a very good thing to watch your mind do, that it perceives solidity where it's not, and it perceives length of time and future where there isn't any. It's a very important area to notice whenever you can notice yourself doing it, because it completely traps us into making something way bigger than it actually is. It's fleeting. But when the mind makes it like a definition and makes it a definition that's a sentence, it's a huge jail sentence that doesn't exist. We just think it will. We assume what's not so. So we do this, tr this training that we're taught, a simple training where the mind is trainable, obviously. <laughs> And as it settles down, it then is able to have a steadier and steadier gaze in this stillness and this safety and this friendliness and this curiosity and all these things we're describing. It is able to look deeper and deeper and more and more clearly. It needs a steadiness to see more and see more. And then we start to see that the way we saw ourselves isn't like that at all and that that's a very superficial way. Those roles even, even the emotions we experience, we start to see how transitory they are and so on. We start to see through what we thought was solid. We start to see that there's just this moment. It may repeat and we may still feel that headache or that feeling of excitement that it snowed last night again and again. But when we look more closely, we see it isn't actually a solid thing at all. It's a momentary thing coming and going, coming and going. This is impossible to see without doing this training because everything is changing so fast. The mind isn't that fine without training. When it's trained and steadier, it can start seeing really what's going on much more clearly. I'm not telling you that we solidify and we eternalize out of some kind of theory. These things that we say are, we're actually sharing what we, we've perceived ourselves. So you'll perceive yourself. You already have lots of you in lots of ways, all of this. Our experience then, when we're in the moment with it, is way more fluid than solid. It's the mind that perceives solidity that's not there. It's in fact more fluid. I expect quite a few of you have read, and if not even read, seen on the TED Talks or received a little quick YouTube click of, um, clip of Jill Bolte-Taylor, the, the um, neuroscientist, the brain scientist who had a stroke. And her book is called My Stroke of Insight. Who of you have not heard of what I'm talking about here? There are a number of you. Um, so she had a stroke at age 37. She was um, a neuroanatomist. So her work was around studying the functioning of the brain scientist and brilliant in her field for her young age. And, uh, and she had a stroke uh, in the morning when she was getting ready to go to work. And she knew pretty quickly what exactly was going on because she understood it, uh, she knows how the brain functions. And her particular stroke was located specifically in her left hemisphere. And so exclusively, and so it 
impaired her, am I in the right side? Yes, it impaired her, all her left hemisphere function, but it did not touch her right hemisphere function. And so she got to live understandingly, and then later on when she re- she became healed. I mean, it took her 10 years to recover, but she recovered com- you know, pretty well, well, completely. She was able to, in her very coherent way, understanding it all, describe the whole thing. And her experience was that the, the, uh, the left hemisphere governs the right-sidedness and all aspects to do with um, evaluation, putting things in place, um, how one thing leads to another, all the linear behaviors, the labeling, the the using of language, even the perception of distance. Whereas the, uh, the right hemisphere governs all the intuition and the sensory immediacy um, without the description. And she lived in this place, but she couldn't speak. She, she said she would even see her arm and she couldn't tell which was her arm and which was the background because that needed that side of the brain to tell the difference. But she felt everything. And then her descriptions of relating to people and how different people would relate to her because she couldn't speak and they didn't know what she felt and how some people would be really anxious because they didn't know how to relate to somebody who couldn't speak, who'd had a stroke, and others who assumed that she was all there, just language wasn't working and so they didn't use language and their body language. Anyway, it's a vast, fascinating thing. But it's really interesting to see how the functioning of the brain was so clearly described and exposed and experienced. She said in this many times in describing her experience that she enjoyed being a fluid. And because she was in the right brain without the left brain telling her what should and shouldn't be and what right and wrong is and defining self, all of which are the left brain, are not at all in the right brain, she was in bliss. And she describes that it was a, a, an experience of Nibbana. She's not a Buddhist. and I'm not going to dispute what her experience was. Nevertheless, her, her, she loved it. <laughs> and she learned that when she recovered her faculties over time, that she then had some choice about whether or not to be run by her thinking brain, her left brain and its judgments. And when it got a little too heavy in her return, she would choose to go back into her right brain and just be in the moment and just allow her fluid experience. It's really worth reading. It's very interesting. Without using the B word or any of the Pali, she just is a regular Western scientist who can describe this directly, so it's worthwhile reading. As we, it's almost as though we do in our meditation training abandon the authority of the left hemisphere and we incorporate the balance of also the right, which is more the direct, without explanation, without all those extras that we put on by the left hemisphere. And we feel more fluid. We feel less time. The Buddha was, his perception was so clear. He was able to see through the veils, they're often called, or the lenses or the colorations, and see what's really there. And he saw the little pieces that is the process of a human and describe them in all different kinds of ways. But a lot of how he taught was, don't see yourself as what you think you are. See yourself as the components of yourself. In other words, take yourself apart, dismantle yourself. And he would describe the classic description of what's called the five aggregates, five different functionings going on, one after the other rapidly, that you take as, as yourself. 
that you believe to be you. Perceiving, first of all, it's the, in, it's the input that happens, a sound happens or a taste happens. And then it's pleasure, pleasant or unpleasant or neither one or the other. So it has a, an instinctive, you know, you go towards it or not if you don't realize that. And then there's perception. You perceive, and oftentimes our perception is that we've already, we know. We know when it's cornflakes in your mouth because you've had cornflakes before. You know, because we've, we're not newborns, so we already know a lot. And then it's what we choose to do with the cornflakes. Munch, munch, yum, yum, more, more, or, you know, spit it out, or depending on what your response is, that's, a, that's the action that comes when we've perceived something. And then the fifth aspect is the awareness of all of that. These are the five ways that we function in every second, every, every flash. The Buddha was able to take the the solidity of what we think of as me, my body, my airiness, whatever, and take it apart and see, see not take it apart, but see the separate functioning. It's extraordinary. Where in there is me? Am I just a product of my upbringing? I'm hugely a product of my upbringing. I'm hugely a product of everything that's happened to me. I am a product of everything that's happened to me. I've seen babies born. I was a midwife for 20 years, so I've seen hundreds of babies born. And I don't think they start with a clean slate, actually. They come out with some little personality or other. <laughs> it doesn't take long to, to figure that one out. But they're pretty open, and they don't have perception. They have no memory. And then, of course, all the play on them of the, all the various experiences that they have and, and, uh, and what that personality makes of all the things. The solidity isn't there. It's just this, it's an influenced thing. This creature is an influenced creature by all these influences. Where is, where is the separate creature? Is it just the potential in the beginning plus the mass of experience? When you start questioning what, who am I, we see that we actually, when we see we're not the solid person that we thought we were, we also see that we can't then be responsible. Because as Yanai was saying, we can't control it. We certainly couldn't control all the influences that happened in our family and our you know, social setting and all the rest of it and all the people we bumped into as we grew up and we keep bumping into every day. We aren't able to control that. And we aren't able to control a lot about our personalities and our take on things. Am I me? Am I able to be me with any sort of control? Who's running this thing? We're way less powerful than we thought we were. It's very humbling. It's somewhat scary. But we do have some power because we have some choice. As we see the functioning going on, we can see the bits where there's some choice. We have a certain amount of choice. That's probably the most me there is. The rest is, is kind of way beyond the control that I thought I had over myself. We're fooling ourselves most of the time into being what isn't actually how it really is. And our exploration leads us into discovering what it is and what it isn't. What we mostly find is what it isn't, who I'm not, who I thought I was, and how I've taken myself to be. And it actually was a layer that's a little more superficial. And I seem to then, my perception can take me below that layer, and then below that layer. Oh, I thought I was this. That's just a habit. That's just an assumption.
That's something I've been playing, a game I've been playing. And then we see through that, and we see through the next one, and on and on. We sort of, we're peeling away habits and belief systems and opinions and identities again and again. And there seems to be less and less de definable. It's very peculiar. It actually feels better, as we know, any one of us who've done it for a while, when we can see through something about ourselves, it feels like, whew, it's not quite such a, a burden. So we feel lighter. I like the word enlightenment. I actually like the word awakening. I think it's more experienceable. But I like the light aspect of enlightenment, because there is this experience of becoming lighter and easier. Some of you have heard of a woman in um, uh, the Western states called Byron Katie. She's a, a woman who had a spontaneous, deep realization years ago, 20 years ago now. And she teaches her version. Again, she's not a Buddhist, doesn't use that language. But she teaches um, to help people throw off an awful lot of what we believe to be ourselves, which isn't ourselves. And she has a way, for those who don't know, she calls it the work. And uh, it addresses the same thing. And she has these four questions that she asks people to help them see what they're misseeing, to help shift the perception. And one of them is, um, I think the first question is something like, um, I don't know if this is in the right order, but how do I feel when I, when I believe that thought? And then how would I feel if I didn't believe that thought? And it's the... Th it's helping us take what we perceived as real and questioning it and realizing if I didn't believe it, then my whole, my whole situation, and people go, of course, with their problems. You know, they're, they're fighting with their spouse. And how do they deal with this? And so she uses this little, this little way to actually untangle the blindness of, well, he's such and such. So that's a thought. And you're believing the thought. What happens if you don't believe that thought? All of a sudden, it's not true. You suddenly realize. She helps you see things aren't what we think. Our perception isn't so right. It's a very good technique. And one of the things you'll hear us say, and you've heard us say in our different ways, is we use this word a lot, just. Yana, of course, this morning was describing to us about thoughts and seeing our thoughts. When we see a thought as a thought rather than a reality, this is the, big, the biggest turnaround as we go through this practice. And we, we say it's just a thought. We, by using the word just, we're no longer believing it so. It's just a mood. I have a friend who's a practitioner who, who oftentimes, as he's practicing, he tunes into how he's feeling. And he'll say to himself, just a mood just a mood, and he actually has changed that to J-A-M. So he's sitting here going, jam, jam. <laughs> <laughs> he's totally changing his perception from like, oh, it's a hell of a day today, to jam, jam. <laughs> Shift of perception, brilliant. So this word just is a good friend for, for us meditators. Um, 
the way we perceive and the way our minds work, even our wiring, our personalities, but the way it's, it, we can't identify and cling on and be what we thought we were. And uh, brain science is it's very interesting what it's revealing now in the way that the technology can actually measure behaviors and so on. So for instance, they now do experiments on rats. I don't know lots of this stuff. It's not my expertise, but you can actually trigger certain behaviors you know, by applying electrodes to certain parts of the brain. I'm sure a lot of you know about this kind of thing. Uh, and with, um, so you can, you know, can make them be friendly, you can make them be agitated by stimulating with electrodes different little parts. It just totally changes their behavior. Um, and it's done with people in you know, c certain degrees. I wonder where this is going to take us in the future, but they can actually trigger a laugh center and, and have people laugh just from an electrical impulse. Kind of fascinating. And I have a friend who, um, this is fascinating when I spoke to her about this. Um, and she has um, a condition uh, which is a very, very light version of a syndrome which some people know about called Asperger's syndrome, a syndrome where um, the left brain is highly functional, but the emotional responsive aspect isn't so. It's a very mild version of, in extreme cases, is autism. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.